0: So, starting in verse nine, what then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all—I mean, everyone, both Jews and Greeks—are under sin, as it's written: None is righteous; no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All turned aside. Together, they've become worthless. No one does good; not even one. Their throats an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their bones. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, will all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he'd passed over former sins. It is to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. All right, if you would, let's pray together. Good Heavenly Father, we pray you show us wonderful things in your law. Lord Jesus, give us sharp minds to help us understand the good news of the gospel and our very need for it. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, Shel Silverstein is one of my favorite poets. I have a very high aesthetic as it regards poetry. And uh, this particular poem I'm going to read to you is Hippo's Hope. And I'm going to make a fool of myself because he made this almost impossible to read in public. But I'm going to try anyway. It has something to teach us. There once was a hippo who wanted to fly, fly Trihidi try my ho. So he sewed him some wings that could flap through the sky, sky Flyhidi fly why go. He climbed to the top of a mountain of snow, snow-hidi, slow-hidi, oh-hidi, who? with the clouds high above and the sea down below, we're-hidi, there-hidi, scare-hidi, Boo. And now, Summerstein does something very interesting. He stops mid-poem and gives you three alternative endings. So this hippo is on the top of a mountain wearing soda on wings. And there's a happy ending. There's the chicken ending, at which he looks at the sky above and the sea below and turns around and goes home and drinks tea instead. And then there's the unhappy ending, which we'll read together. So, <laughs> <laughs> And he leaped like a frog, and he fell like a stone, Lo- no, Stone huddy, lone huddy, own huddy flop, and he crashed and he drowned and broke all his bones. Bones huddy, moans huddy, groans huddy, glop. Yeah, have you read his story of the little engine that could? It sort of ends like this, too, by the way. He ends up in, I think he calls it engine hash at the end of it. Um, why the, why they picked the sad one? Well, some of you could say it's a reflection of my personality. Uh, <laughs> But uh, the, the thing is called Hippo's Hope. The name of the poem is Hippo's Hope. And uh, any reasonable hope requires a foundation and an anchor. Uh, this is something that Jean-Paul Sartre, famous French existentialist and novelist, really wrestled with throughout his life, and especially at the end. About a month before his death, he declared that he was so strongly resisting the feelings of despair that every day he would say to himself, I know I shall die in hope. But then in profound sadness he would confess, but hope needs a foundation. There's really no foundation for hippo's hope. I mean, come on, he's not going to fly. So, um, yeah, he ends up in in hippo hash at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, What we're going to find today in this text, and if you've been following along, you'll see what Paul's been doing. uh, There's a grand indictment going on. He starts in chapter 1 with the pagan nations that don't know the Jewish God, and basically says, they know something about God, they've suppressed the knowledge of God, and this is what's happened to them as a result. And then he begins in the next chapter with the moralist, regardless regardless of whether they're Jewish moralist or Greek Reco- Roman barbarian moralist, all the same, they take the law, judge others by it, and then ignore it themselves and do whatever they want. And then he goes on to the religious moralists and say, you know the law, you break it. And basically, he's drawing everyone together into the courtroom of judgment, and he ends with verses 1 through 9, or 9 through uh, 20 that we read, which is not a very pretty picture, right? It's, it's quite the indictment. And what we find is all of humanity is on trial without exemption. They're all guilty without excuse. And the text actually ends with God saying, through Paul, and the moment will come when the, when the prosecutor has finished his conclusion And we will each have the opportunity to stand and make a defense for ourselves, and we will say nothing. It actually says that in, like, verse 19 somewhere. Know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so every mouth may be stopped. Uh, when this happens, when God indicts us, and he says, do you have an excuse? Do you have anything to say in your defense? And God shows us what we've done, and in the intents of our heart, we'll say Because we'll know it's true. And frankly, I mean, this this should be about the most hopeless situation you can imagine. Like, I know I'm guilty, and now what? And what we find in our text is actually a remarkable hope. That because of what God has done out of love in Jesus, we can have hope. Because of what God has done out of love in hope in Christ, we can have hope. Uh, I'm going to talk about faith, hope, and love. For those things, those qualities. I'm going to switch the order and talk about hope, love, and faith, and talk about love the most. So we're going to talk about hope first, and then love quite a bit more, and then talk about faith at the end. And frankly, at this point, just having read nine through twenty or so, there's really no reason to expect hope. Hope is unreasonable. Uh, there's no reason we should deserve hope. The text basically summarizes that we're ungodly. We it begins this way. We don't love God. And we don't fear God. We don't really love him as we should. We're supposed to love him with heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we don't. Instead, we worship ourselves. And Sometimes we believe in God, but we're really trying to co-op him to help him help us do what we really want because we're what's most important to us. And we're unrighteous, meaning we don't love others well. And God has equipped us with minds and tongues and hands and feet for serving others and serving him. And instead, we employ those things to do what we want which does not serve him and serve others. And so in the end, we're defenseless. And verse 23 sums it all up. It really does, sums it all up. You hear this verse quite a bit, perhaps. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a very simple summary of the courtroom scene. God the judge is holy, and everyone else has fallen really short of that. In 1991, during the summer, there was perhaps the world's greatest ever uh, competition in the long jump. And it's because of who was participating. Uh, Two men in particular, Mike Powell, current world record holder, it's been 22 years, and um, Carl Lewis, who, despite not having the world record, is probably the world's greatest long jumper. He has eight of the longest jumps ever. Purportedly, he actually jumped 30 feet once, which would be nine inches beyond the world record. And they had a competition wherein they broke the world record three times in this competition. And Mike Powell made the most amazing jump ever, in which he jumped eight inches beyond his uh, personal best and broke the world record he won it. Now, um, now, I want to take you to a different place. And that's the Grand Canyon for two reasons. One, I'm stealing an illustration and making it my own. And two, the Grand Canyon has been on my mind because I've been talking to Christina Yulti's mother. So Christina, whom we talked about earlier, and we'll pray for her later, she acts All say hi to Christina. Everyone say hi to Christina. Hi, Christina. That's right. We love you, Christina. So I'm going to make her listen to that. Um, She's from Arizona, and they hike the Grand Canyon twice a year. Uh, They go in May, and they hike just down and back. In October, they actually hike down all the way through and up the other side. I was talking to her mother about how I would never, ever do this, because I don't like this kind of suffering. And I inquired further into the details, and they start at 5 in the morning, because it gets to be 110 degrees on the bottom, even in October. And it's 18 miles across. One mile down, 18 miles across, one mile up. So now to blend the the metaphors, uh, let's let's take the long jump and put it on the edge of the Grand Canyon. And whether you're Mike Powell or Carl Lewis, or as the first person I heard this illustration from said, two-ton Bubba, whether you're the greatest long jumper in human history, no one's ever jumped further, or two-ton Bubba, who gets ahead of steam and simply just rolls off the edge of the cliff. <laughs> you all fall woefully short. The chasm between our efforts and what's required of us, which is righteousness, is beyond 18 miles. No amount of human striving will get us to the other side. And that's what he's doing here in nine through 18, leading up to 20 and 21. Basically, saying by works of the law, that is, by your efforts, you can never be righteous enough. You can never measure up. In that sense, any hope we have would be completely undeserved. And what we find next is completely unexpected. In verse 21, we actually see a sliver of hope with this interruption. Like, who likes to be interrupted? Anyone? Who likes being interrupted? Do you? You're pretty nice. Um, No, no one likes being interrupted. But here we have a glad interruption. In verse. See, there you go. I hate it when you interrupt me, (laughs) Tim. Is uh, in verse 21, this interruption, but now. It's like the happiest budding in ever. Into the midst of this uh, indictment where there is no hope, it seems God Himself, in the midst of our silence, speaks and says, but now. And good news is coming. We don't have anything to say, there's no reason for hope, it seems. But God's going to do something. And what we have next is a long explanation. I'm just going to call it love. But it's actually going to be theologically laden. Now, uh, I'm I'm going to do something a little unusual here. I'm going to apply this before I actually teach it. Usually I tell you something and then say, this is what you do with it. And that's fitting. Here I'm going to apply it and then tell you what it's about. That's a little strange, right? Well, this is why. I'm going to talk about love and God's love, and I'm going to talk about it in some in-depth, in detailed theological analysis. And some of you are thinking, like, oh, no, that's right. That's so why I'm doing the application now. Because uh, a lot of us, and I'm not even talking about some of you here that may not be Christians, you may be like, what's he doing this for? Uh, some of us have grown up in traditions in the faith where we think it's just really easy to love God. And perhaps it is, because you're a nice person. You just sort of naturally love God. You know God loves you. You love him back. Well, what often happens is, every other part of your life, and your brain, is growing. You're learning accounting. And biological engineering. And you're learning how the world works, and the solar system works. And your physics brain is being expanded. Meanwhile, your faith is still the faith of an eight-year-old. You haven't, struggle. You hear words like propitiation. You're like, that's five syllables. Shit, <laughs> don't want that. <laughs> and we're going to encounter that word. Every other part of your life, you know you've got to struggle to understand and appreciate. And what I want to tell you now is if you really want to understand how much God loves you, if you really want to grow in your love for God, you really got to understand what he's doing or what he's done. And Paul's going to tell us, but he's going to use some big theological words to do it. And if we really want to know the nature of God's love, we need to be willing to wrestle with that. So that's the application. Follow me as we wrestle with it. Don't tune out. Phase out. So uh, first of all, it's love because there's some hope. Anything that happens at this point is undeserved. It should be over. Like the indictment's been said, we've got nothing to do. We have no defense. And yet there's hope. And there's hope because God loves. This is John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. The only reason God gave a son is because he loved the world. Not because we deserved it. Not because we were nice. Not because of anything. He just loved And this text sort of begins in the same place. Because God loves, he gave his son. Only there's more detail. We see the father's love in verse 25. In this, that God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, the person of Jesus. Okay, So God shows his love in that he puts forward Jesus as a propitiation. And you're thinking, what is, what is that? And some of you know, and some of you don't. And that's okay, because it's a word no one ever uses. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. And the short definition of this is, it's a sacrifice of atonement that appeases wrath. And already, some of you should be like, ooh, I don't like that. God's wrathful. He needs appeasing. This sounds like the drunk, abusive father who falls off the handle and smacks someone, and the older brother jumps in to appease his wrath. And uh, that might be your only association with this kind of thing. Well, this sounds like some kind of uh, animalistic, pagan sacrifice thing. Uh, this is different in this sense. Uh, God, in all his emotions and actions, is perfect. He's the only one, perhaps, that can be perfectly wrathful. And he is. His wrath is always directed towards evil. God, in this text, is just. Completely just. All the time. That's part of the issue. He's just, which means we should get what we deserve, and that's not good. So uh, he is executing his wrath perfectly, and uh, he is appeased. That's the other part. Most of the time we think about this kind of idea of appeasing a god by some kind of sacrifice. And who brings the sacrifice? It's us. Got to go get the calf or maybe even my child and appease the angry gods. Here it's God who makes the sacrifice. It's God himself who goes and finds the necessary sacrifice. And what he gives is the most costly thing he has. It's his son, which is the most personal thing he loves. In fact, it's a very personal, costly sacrifice to him. This is about the most loving thing God could do. God is appeasing his wrath by giving of himself. This is the nature of his love. Don't think, I've heard some people say this is cosmic child abuse. Uh, Well, I'll address that now. The Father, out of his love, is willing to give Jesus for us in order to appease God's wrath. But Jesus does it willingly. This text is about all the work that Jesus does. And he's a propitiation by his blood, meaning Jesus willingly goes to the cross. If you're familiar with uh, the Gospels, and even if you're not, there's a scene before Jesus goes to his death which shows that the crucifixion was not some tragic accident in history. He knows what's going to happen. In the garden the night before, he goes and prays, Father, I really don't want to do this. I know there's a cup of wrath of your punishment on sin to be drunk, and I don't want to do it. I know what it's going to be like, and I don't want to do it. Yet, if you want me to, I will. And so Jesus gladly accepts painfully, but truly, accepts the Father's will and goes to the cross. Jesus goes to the cross because he wants to. This was the plan, and this shows us Christ's love as well, that Jesus willingly goes to the cross and bears our punishment. To give you a more modern example of what this is all about, uh, in 19... not very modern, because you weren't born yet, but in 1987, uh, Northwest Flight 225 to Tempe, Arizona crashed shortly after landing. It crashed onto an interstate, and... uh, they killed everyone on board except for one child named Cecilia. Cecilia was a nine-year-old girl, and she was found wandering around the interstate. And initially, when people found her, the, the responders found her, they thought she must be a confused motorist or passenger uh, as all the traffic was backed up. But then they took the flight uh, manual or the list of all the passengers and found her name and that of her mother. And they were astounded. This girl survived the crash without a scratch. And then she told them the story of what happened. and It was even more amazing. So shortly after takeoff, Cecilia heard a loud bang. And uh, as you would expect if you have flown at that point, uh, the compartments opened and the oxygen mask fell down. And uh, immediately afterward, the plane careened to the side. Everyone started screaming. And uh, as the plane began a rapid descent, as everyone's sort of losing their mind, Cecilia's mother calmly gets up. She unbuckles her seatbelt, gets up, comes over to her, and lays on her and completely cocoons her daughter with herself and presses her body up against the seat and then takes the... You weren't supposed to do this to me, Story. uh, Takes the the, the violent impact of, of the crash upon herself, and her daughter walks out flawless, without a scratch, at the cost of her mother's life. This is what... The idea of a propitiary sacrifice is that someone who doesn't deserve to die gladly took someone else's spot that they might live. This is what Jesus has done for us. Uh, the text goes on and describes Jesus' work in one other way, not just a uh, sacrifice, of propitiation, but a redemption. And, and here we go to a different venue, which is that of the marketplace. The, the word redemption was often used to apply to the buying back of slaves. When people in the ancient days were in debt, they would sell themselves into slavery in order to work off their debt. And the idea here is of someone in great debt, unable to free themselves, and someone coming and purchasing them. Now, this requires a couple of things. It requires someone to care enough to purchase them and someone to have the assets to do it. And the picture here is that we have a tremendous debt a debt. The the, the currency of heaven is righteousness and we're bankrupt. Jesus comes and lives life perfectly and has an infinite amount of righteousness. And because he loves us, he decides to pay our debt. He pays off our debt and gives us his righteousness in the end so that we have his full credit. The summary for all this is in verse 24. It's the word justified. It's an important word. All these words are important, justified by maybe the most important. It's that God himself, seeing what Jesus has done for us, seeing our faith in Jesus, then declares us to be completely right. Knowing we're guilty, knowing we have a great debt, knowing we deserve wrath for our sin, looks upon us, sees us forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us, and then grants us all of Christ's righteousness and treats us that way. That's, just, that's justification. It's the very center of Christianity. And if you don't understand it, you're not willing to wrestle with it. You're not willing to wrestle with the very heart of what Christianity is. And I beg you. If you really want to know what God's love is, this is, this is where it lies right here. Uh, I've told this illustration a couple times because I really like it and I really want it to be true. Um, so it runs like this. Uh, I, have really good, I have really good credit. I have a really good credit score. I'm about as proud of it as just about anything in my life, Um, because I really don't deserve it. And the way it works is like this. So we got married, and we had debt, and we happened to get married at a time where you could get 0% cards really easy. So we got all these 0% credit cards, which you can't find now, and we transferred all our debt onto them and paid it off and never paid a dime in interest. It was great. And then we, yeah, I know, it was amazing. Some of you were like, What? And I have my my student loans were at 2.3%. No one threw anything. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. So, uh, and then we began to purchase everything on credit cards and pay our balance every month. Like, we buy everything we can on credit cards and pay it off every month. My goal is to have enough Amex points where I buy, like, the Amex yacht at the end of my lifetime. I want the boat. Um, So, uh, in spite of my great credit, uh, I, I can pretty much apply for almost any credit card I want can get it it's amazing and we don't make that much money like we really don't i promise um it's just that we have good credit like if we we're trying to buy a nice house they'd be like "Yeah, great credit but no money um so uh there's this one card that i'm sure i wouldn't get i'll describe why uh, on average those who own it spend at least a quarter of a million dollars a year on the card the annual fee is not listed but it's guessed to be somewhere in the hundred thousand dollar a year range the annual fee for the card. There is no known credit limit. The card is made of titanium. (laughs) It's called the Amex Black Card. And by producing it, anywhere you go, you have not only like infinite credit, you have instant cachet. Like you pull this thing out and you're treated like a prince or princess. We'll get you whatever you want because I'm sure you can afford it. Now, I will never have one of these. But it doesn't mean I couldn't use one right? Seriously. I'll never own one, but it doesn't mean I couldn't use one. So imagine a scenario in which, after a large group, I say, hey, y'all, let's all go out. Let's go downtown to the Hyde Park Steakhouse, which I really like. It's really nice. I can never afford to take you there. But we do it, and we run up a tremendous bill. Like, multiple thousands of dollars. The carrot cake's like this big. We'd like, 30 of those, please. And we just throw it at each other because it's fun. And (laughs) at the end of the night, they bring me my check, and I'm like, whoa, that's more than I've ever owned in my entire life. And they're like, you're going to jail. And, uh, you know, I, I write my name on it, and it's worth nothing. But then I pull out the MX Black card, which belongs to someone else, and they'll simply say, would you like anything else tonight, sir? Because all the credit of that person is mine. And that's the picture here. That's the picture here. I, of myself, I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve the canceling of my debt. I don't deserve infinite righteousness. But because I put my faith in Jesus, Jesus writes his name over me. God sees me, sees my debt canceled, and treats me like his son, in his infinite righteousness. That's justification. And it's beautiful. It's the heart of Christianity. Now, um, last we'll talk about faith. And uh, because of God's love, because of Christ's work, we have good reason to trust. And actually, we're sort of commanded here to trust. It's not quite a command. But really, in this text, what we've studied is all these things God does unexpectedly. There's no reason to expect God to do this. We have really no reason to hope. And yet, for some good reason, his love, he does all these things anyway. But we do have to do something. We're called to believe. And uh, what is faith here? Faith, first off, is simply resting. In verse 21, it's made clear that this righteousness that we have is apart from works. In case you don't get it, he comes back at the end of the text and says it again. The righteousness we have is apart from works of the law. That means your performance morally has no standing before God. You cannot please him by your moral efforts and strivings. That's not the way to do it. In fact, that's insane. Uh, Frankly, what we often are trying to do with our moral efforts is leap the Grand Canyon. I'll try again. Crash. I'll just try again. Crash. You're just never going to do it. Uh, instead, we have to rest in the righteousness of Jesus that's been achieved for us. We rely on him. We rest in him. We put our faith in him. That his life and his death have achieved all that we need to be right with God. And that this faith is actually reasonable. I was talking to someone earlier in the week and I was talking about faith, and uh, they said, you know, like the, like the leap in the dark kind of faith, and i like, no, not like a leap in the dark. Um, the way we often think about faith is, and I'll use another example I've used in the past, is what I did when I was seven years old. I climbed to the top of a crabapple tree in my backyard, and I loved this tree, and I loved to play in it because it was full of vines. It had vines that grew from the ground up to the tree to the very top. And I got to the top of the tree, and I could see, I still remember this so clearly, it was like, 30 years ago, top of the tree, and I could see out of the top of the tree all around. I was like, this is crazy. And then it is something even crazier. I decided on a whim immediately. I can fall and I'll be okay. So I literally let go and fell through the tree because I had faith that the vines would catch me. Now that was so stupid. <laughs> and that is not what faith is supposed to be. I was very fortunate that I uh, had my foot ensnared by a vine right before I crashed into the ground. Uh, but that, was, that is not what faith is supposed to be. That was really dumb. That's not faith. Uh, I would instead give you an alternate example, which is uh, the idea of walking on ice. Walking on ice, if you don't know it, is a skill you need to develop to survive in Pittsburgh. Uh, if, you're, if, if you're just arriving, this will be something good. You have to learn how to, you know, shift your weight slowly and don't get too full of yourself, or you'll bust your head. And um, it's even more important when you live up north, further, and you have to decide. You have to learn not only how to walk, but also where and when. You know, because here we're walking over ice that's like that thick. Whereas further north, you might be crossing a river or a lake. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, what what, what can happen easily is you can get the equation all wrong. You can have, you can be a skillful walker. You can be a skillful ice walker and have tremendous faith in the ice. But if the ice is weak, you're going to drown. You can also have very weak faith and be a terrible walker. And if the ice is thick, you're going to be fine. And what I want to tell you is, in Christianity, Jesus is a thick ice. You don't need to have the strongest faith in the world, and you can actually be a terrible walker. It's the object of your faith that matters. He is utterly reliable. He's not going to crack. He will hold. His love is trustworthy and sure. You can know him, you can know the reasonableness of this, and you can rely on it. So, this text is all, all about what God does. It really is. It's about what Jesus does, it's what God does, and yet, three times, three times in the text, it calls us. It tells us the righteousness through faith for all who believe that this gift is received by faith. And I just wanted to I want to press this home for you, whoever you might be, whether you're someone that's a Christian, um, who's sort of trying to figure out again, like, can I really believe this? Or someone who's a Christian is like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Lighten up, dude. I, I believe already. Uh, there may be trials coming where you're tested. And you're wondering, does God really love me? Because nothing works, nothing's working out. And at those times, you need to come back and look at this and say, Jesus bore my penalty on the cross. He gave me his righteousness. God loves me. He's not angry at me. He loves me. I'm thinking God saying, stay away from me. You're a mess. You're broken. I don't have anything to do with you. No, God's saying, you're my beloved child. I've given my son for you. Come here, child. Come to me. If that's your story, hear that. That's what Jesus is for you. That's what Jesus has done for you. And if that's not your story, you're not a Christian, you don't, or you don't know if you're a Christian, or you're confused trying to figure out what this is about, uh, what I want you to know is I'm not pressuring you at all. No one here should. If anyone here pressures you, I want to know it. Instead, what I want you to know is what I've explained to you is the very heart of Christianity, that God is knowable, that God has acted on your behalf, in order to make you right, and that Christianity is not your performing to make God happy. Instead, it's God performing on your behalf in order to make you right with him. If you'd like to talk more about that, I'd love to meet with you and talk about how God makes us right because he loves us. I, uh, yeah, I'll share this story. Uh, one of my bosses was sharing this summer how he was driving through his neighborhood and as he was driving through the neighborhood, he noticed one of his uh, neighbor's house was on fire. This was about 5.45 in the morning. He noticed the very early flickers of flame around the interior window. And uh, by the time he actually walked, he was walking, I think, by the time he was, got to the house, the, the fire had already spread through the interior of the room. And uh, insanely, first thing, he actually called it the fire department like he should. Uh, and then insanely, he got like a garden hose and started spraying it. And, and then, like 30 minutes later, no, like five minutes later, the, the carport doors open and the couple come out that own the house. And uh, they're freaking out. She's actually reasonably composed. This a couple in their 50s. He's freaking out. And uh, he's running around madly. And by this time, it's only been five minutes, uh, the fire has spread to the roof and across, and the front door is on fire. They can hear the fire alarm go off in the firehouse five minutes away. And they know it helps on the way. The wife is in the front yard, composed, looking at the house, all their possessions, slowly burning. My friend, who should know better, is holding a garden hose. Drip, drip, drip. (laughs) The husband is at the front door doing this. (laughs) Desperately trying to put out a fire. The guy is probably a banker or a lawyer. He's probably brilliant. (laughs) Garden hose. (sighs) Trying to put out a fire. While the experts are coming. At some point, the wife comes over and very lovingly just grabs her husband and pulls him over. Honey, it's okay. She actually has to come over and grab John and be like, you can stop now. He's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fire department comes. This is like a four alarm fire. It's a huge disaster. They put it out in 30 minutes. And what this text is telling us is by our moral efforts, by our moral strivings, by trying to keep the law to please God, we're doing that. <laughs> There's no hope in that. None. It's, it's actually insane. It's crazy to put your faith in that. The reality is, help is coming. It has come in the person of Jesus. And he's done everything that needs to be done. So you should put your faith in him. Let's pray together.